All right, welcome back to another episode of Royals Review Radio. My name is Alex Duvall. I'm hosting this thing. Joined, as always, tonight by my co-host, Jeremy Greco. Jeremy, how we doing? Uh, pretty good, I reckon. It would be better with some baseball, but we'll just have to wait a few months. Well, I actually, so it's funny you say that. I was, when we scheduled this, I don't really know that I was looking at the at the, at the schedule for the MLB playoff schedule. We always record on Wednesdays, Jeremy and I do, and I just was looking at the calendar, picked a Wednesday, and said, can everybody meet this Wednesday? And then I think it was like last week, I was like, oh, no, that could be in the middle of Game 7. Like, I just distracted everyone from Game 7 to record a podcast. So thank you, Atlanta, for going ahead and getting rid of that problem last night. Uh, joined tonight by the editor-in-chief of Royals Review, Max Reaper. Max, how are we doing this offseason? Pretty good. Uh, you know, the cold offseason has begun, so that's not – uh, great, but um, you know it's exciting because I think this could be actually an, an interesting offseason for the Royals. So uh, that's kind of exciting. Also joined tonight by David Lesky. David, thank you for joining us tonight. Absolutely happy to be here. And I, I think you know the, the World Series being over is actually good for Royals fans because now the Royals are at least as relevant as other teams again. So it, it's, it could be worse. <laughs> Royals are in first place again as of today. The next time baseball players take the field in an MLB stadium, the Royals will be in first place in the AL Central. Um, David, really quick, you write um, – you have your own newsletter over in Into the Fountains. No, that's correct. Inside the Crown. Inside, inside the, the Crown. Okay. Yeah. I, I told Jeremy on the last podcast I can never keep the two <laughs> newsletters straight. Mine's the better one. Come on. <laughs> well, every morning I wake up, and the first two emails I get on my Gmail – are ITC and ITF, and I read them both. And sometimes I will read a full newsletter and forget who wrote which one. Um, so thank you. Inside the Crown, do you have any big off-season plans for your newsletter you want to tell everybody about? Yeah, I'm going to keep writing. Um, no, I honestly, I don't really know yet. Um, you know, just kind of coming up with the ideas as they – I mean, there, there, there's some really – there's the low hanging fruit of the off season, but you know, like last was it this week or last week. I don't know. Sometime in the last two weeks, I wrote about Brady singer and, and his diminished drop on all of his pitches. And so the plan is to do more like that. Um, just need the time, which I have not had in a while. So hopefully soon. Also joining us tonight is the author of the Tuesday column over at Royals review this week in the minors. Uh, Minda Haas Kuhlman. Minda, how are we doing tonight? <laughs> Every technical difficulty under the sun, but if you can hear me now, then I'm good. Good. Thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, I'm excited to have everybody here together, like an Avengers squad of writers at Royals Review, uh, to, to talk about the offseason tonight. There's already been a trade made. The Reds sent Tucker Bradley, not Tucker Bradley, Tucker Barnhart to Detroit. Uh, so the off season is officially in full swing with the World Series ending last night, and everybody brought a topic to the table. We're going to talk about tonight. So I want to start. We're going to start talking about the infielders because it is, in my opinion, the most fascinating thing the Royals will have to um, navigate this off season. I think the reality of the situation is that Bobby Witt Jr. starts his season in Omaha. And they start off with Mondesi getting regular everyday playing time, everyday-ish playing time in the big leagues. And then they play it out from there. And as soon as they need Bobby Witt Jr., when Mondesi inevitably gets hurt at some point, they can go get him. I think that's probably the way it goes. But it's probably not the best lineup they could run out there every day either. 
And so I think it presents them with a really, really interesting uh, dilemma. And it's a good dilemma to have, having too much talent, having more good players, more adequate starters than you have positions to put them at. Jeremy, I'll start with you tonight. If you're thinking from, from the Royals' perspective about the infield as we get into the 2022 season, how are you navigating this offseason, and what kind of plans do you think the Royals should have specifically for Adalberto Mondesi and Bobby Witt Jr.? Well, if I'm the Royals, the first thing I'm probably doing is, is listening to any trade offers anyone makes for Merrifield, Mondesi, or uh, even Nicky Lopez. That's not to say you necessarily think you're going to trade any of them, but you're if you get a good offer, you're dealing from a position of perceived strength, and uh, maybe you can fill in some holes that way. Um, beyond that, I, it's I would you you said you think Bobby Witt Jr. starts the year in AAA, and of course that's absolutely a possibility. But I think if he has anything like the spring training he had last year or this year, however you want to phrase it. Uh, in 2022 that the the Royals are going to go ahead and, and start him in the big leagues. Uh, the Royals like to be aggressive with their prospects. They like to look like they're trying to compete. They don't want to seem like they're messing with service time. So I, I think that's absolutely a possibility that he could start the year with the big league team. And I think having all four of those guys isn't a bad thing. Um, we know that Mondesi has a history of injuries and we know that Merrifield, I, I, all of them offer some positional flexibility of one type or another. Um, any of them could have injuries, not just Mondesi. And, and you know, if somebody's ineffective, even having options for to replace them is, is a good thing to have. It uh, helps keep the, when you're, when you've got all your eggs in one basket, it's harder to compete. And so having extra guys who might be good if somebody isn't, uh, is a, a good thing. <laughs> Minda, you're our resident, um, resident Omaha resident, our local, our team Omaha resident. You saw plenty of Bobby Witt Jr. this summer. In your, in your opinion, do you think Bobby Witt Jr. is big league ready? Is there a reason, in your opinion, to hold him down in Omaha to start 2022? I try really hard not to like buy into hype. Um, However, I think Bobby's a real deal. I think that for him, um, I don't, I'm not really sure like what else he could learn at AAA that he couldn't just pick up as he goes as a major leaguer. Um, I, I it, it's all there and he is, he just lives and breathes baseball in a way that if there's anything deficient, uh, I think that he could pick it up and not have this thing happen where like, if he gets called up too soon, he will implode and never play well again. I, I think he could handle it if he struggled. Lesky, one thing that I think a lot of Royals fans are going to bring up, and, and like Jeremy even mentioned already, the positional versatility. One potential solution to getting all four of those guys on the infield at once is, is having Whit Merrifield play in the outfield. I personally think the, the defense he showed off at second base this summer is reason enough to pencil him in second base and just let him play second base. I also think there's, there's very understandable reasons to think he could go play in the outfield to make room for everybody. 
My problem with that is if he goes to the outfield with Benintendi and Taylor also probably getting everyday playing time, uh, a guy I want to see play every day in Kyle Isbell doesn't have that opportunity anymore. So in your opinion, do you think, A, the Royals will play with Merrifield in the outfield regularly if they need to? And, B, do you think they should? So I, I think I think Merrifield is a second baseman now. Um, I think that with what he did this year, it would be very difficult to move him. I, I, I From what I've heard, what I understand, Adalberto Mondes is going to get an outfielder's glove. And he's going to be a utility player, kind of. And, and not – <clears throat> not the I'm gonna, not Hunter Alberto utility player, but he's going to play a lot of days. And I would not be surprised if he's playing right field in the opening day lineup. Now that doesn't, doesn't clear that spot for Isbell, of course. So that still provides the same issue, but I, I think Mondesi is the one who's moving around. And, and I, I, I think Bobby Witt starts in the big leagues too. I think he's the starting third baseman on opening day. Um, I think, I, I don't think it's impossible that he is the shortstop within a month. I, I love what Nicky Lopez did, but also, the track record's not there. He could, I outlined it in a, in a notes article a few weeks ago, a little bit lower, I think 30 points lower on Babbitt. And all of a sudden he's a 275, 320, 340 hitter. And that's the good defense. Yes. But that's, you don't, you don't block Bobby Witt Jr. for that. And so I think that it's certainly possible that, that there's, there's some movement there, but um, yeah, I, I, I don't think Merrifield's in the outfield, but I do think Mondesi is. And I, I, I don't know how well that's going to go. I don't know if that actually helps his body or hurts it. I, I, you could see both sides, but I think, I think he's the one who's going to play on the grass eventually. It's interesting you say that because I think there's a lot of fans that have been clamoring for it and a lot of fans. I mean, it makes some sense, especially in center field where you could really go let his legs play. I've made the point in the past that a guy who can't stay healthy, so we're going to give him longer distances to run and further distances to throw the ball. Um, so if he goes to the outfield, I, I don't see how that's a health-related move, but I do see how it could be a move related to finding guys' spots and playing him less often. Like if the goal is to get 100 games out of Mondesi by playing him every – like two, like playing him two out of every three games, um, that playing him in the outfield allows him that utility role. But I do think it's interesting, especially on the on the injury part, is like there's no walls to bang into on the infield. Um, and there is the throwing it further, running further, and and potentially more often. So I don't know. It's an interesting move, but I do think it's interesting that you think that he could be in the outfield regularly because that does give them more versatility than the aforementioned versatility they already have. Max, when it comes to first base being an infield spot, Carlos Santana was awful in the back half of last season. Started off fine, and, and truthfully, at his first – three months. Yeah. Three months. I thought, man, this is a great signing by Dayton Moore. Carlos Santana is exactly the stopgap They, they kind of needed for this team till Nick Prado can be ready. And then he hit a wall. I mean, he was completely unplayable for the rest of the season. And of course the Royals in their position continue to play him. But when it comes to first base, the Royals have some interesting options and it, they haven't cut Ryan O'Hearn yet. So, I mean, we can't totally eliminate the possibility of Ryan O'Hearn being around next year either. They're not going to cut Carlos Santana, I don't think, because they owe him too much money. So what do the Royals do at first base if Nick Prado comes out in spring training and looks like he's more than ready to play in the big leagues? Well, I think there's a little bit of precedent there. Like Eric Hosmer 
had a sensational 2010 season where he just like lit up the minors um, and got promoted to Omaha and even hit well in Omaha. And they had him start out the next year in Omaha, played Kyla Kahui to start the year, kind of as a placeholder, knowing with everyone knowing that Hosmer would be up before very long. And by May, Hosmer was up. And I think that's what they'll do with Prado. And I think there's things you can still work on. I mean, like his strikeout rate is still really high. And I think some of that's um, him figuring out the the strike zone. But I think some of that's also, and I think, David, you maybe you mentioned this before, but some of that's just minor league umpiring. (laughs) Like, you know, he has a really good eye and, um, you know, he's not necessarily getting that call right now. Uh, Maybe he'll get that call to the major league level or after he's, you know, uh, accumulated some cred uh, as a hitter. But, uh, you know, there's definitely things you can work on. Uh, and I don't think it would be like, you know, this wouldn't be a, a, an obvious service time manipulation thing if they sent him to Omaha for like a couple months just to just to start uh, and work on some things and, you know, see if Carlos Santana can revive his trade value at all. Uh, so I would expect that to be the case. But I would, you know, I would expect if Prado, it's anything close to what he did this year, he'll be the world's first baseman by the all-star break. I did really want to go, go back real quick to to what you're talking about with wit. Uh, and then this is kind of like breaking Alec Lewis had a, an article late this evening uh, where he talks to, to, I guess the two headed, two headed boss right now. Cause it's, it's interesting. He's talking to Dayton Moore and JJ Piccolo uh, and kind of getting their thoughts in the off season. And JJ says on Bobby Witt, he says, uh, you know, he says exactly what Jeremy said. He's going to have a spring training just like he did last year. And he goes on to say, coming off a season like he had, it's going to be hard not to have him on the team. And, you know, we know what Bobby would, you know, capable of he's wowed coaches. He's wowed his teammates. Um, It's going to be hard for him not to make the roster. It depends a lot on what happens with the new labor agreement, how they get, how they do service time next year. Um, If there is a labor agreement, if there's not, and they start the season without a deal, um, you know, do they, they probably don't put him on the roster in case there's a strike or a lockout at some point. So, that's, that's a factor, but man, it, it looks like he's going to be on the team next year. Well, David, you said you wanted to talk about the CBA stuff this coming off season, right? That was not me. That was not. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to talk about it though. <laughs> one, one of us. That was me. Max, that that's was why me. I brought it up. I don't know if you want to segue into that. <laughs> well, that's a great segue. Um, let's go ahead and talk about it. Cause I do think there's a chance. Um, unfortunately, it may not be a good chance, but I do think there's a chance. Um, that there is no baseball on April 1st in 2022. So Max, go ahead and um, let's talk about the CBA a little bit and some, some of the off season shenanigans. Um, You know, I I think the number one way it affects the Royals is with their potential manipulation of service time. Let's say something drastic happens and they cut an entire year off and the longest the Royals could have Bobby Witt Jr. is five years if he's on the opening day roster I think there's a, a better chance that they manipulate his service time then than there would be normally. Um, but I think that's the number one way it affects the Royals. More generally, I think it affects baseball. If they don't come to an agreement. We're not going to have baseball. So um, go ahead and give us your thoughts, and then we can kind of uh, branch off from there. No, I think that's that, that's right. And I, I think regardless of whether or not there's a deal or not, I mean, he's a guy that they should be talking about, a long-term deal right, right now. Like, give him – the Evan Longoria treatment, you know, or, you know, some of the other deals we've seen where guys sign contracts 
before they've even, re- you know, in their first week or even before they reach the big leagues. Um, and I, I don't know if he'd be amenable to that. I mean, certainly he probably want to bet on himself a little bit considering the the, the numbers he put up this year. But um, if there is a deal that, that that's out there to be had, I, I, I could be wrong, but is, is I believe he's uh, represented by Octagon because his dad's an agent. So he's not a Scott Boris client or anything like that. But if he's open to a long-term deal, I think you, could, you, could, you should, you know, the Royals should definitely be talking about that. You know, the, 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 the labor stuff, I'm still kind of optimistic about it. I, I think the two sides are far apart, but it's not like um, it's not like 1994 where owners were like dead set on a salary cap. Uh, the owners want to lower the luxury tax thresholds, which um, would would reduce spending quite a bit, uh, depending on how much you lower it by. Uh, but it really only affects a few clubs. Like I don't know if like John Sherman is going to be digging his feet in and saying, yeah, we need to lower that luxury tax threshold that my team never gets close to and will never get close to. So um, I don't know if all the owners are going to be on board with that. If, if, if they can get some concessions from the, from the players and the players maybe, um, you know, get a floor and they can change service time. You know, I think you're, you're getting pretty close to, to getting both sides on board. So I, I think the one, the best stat, I guess I heard this week was that, okay, so this is a, there's a difference between a lockout and a strike. A lockout's when the, the owners say, you know, we're going to stop things, which is what this would be since there's no season right now. And a strike, obviously, when the players say we're not going to work anymore. So this would be a, a lockout as things stand right now if we, you know, if we if things come to that point in December. And there's never been, with a lockout, there's never been an actual loss of playing time. There's They've always been able to resolve it before the season, and we've never lost games. So I, that's what keeps me kind of optimistic. It, this this deal expires in December. That gives them a couple of months to work something out. I imagine this will probably stretch into March. We may get spring training pushed back a little bit. You may see a flurry of signings in the, in the first couple of weeks. And it'll be interesting to see like if teams make a lot of moves until the deal expires December first. Like we already saw, like you said, you, you saw the Reds already make a trade today for Tucker, uh, sending Tucker Barnhart to the Tigers. The Royals resigned Michael A. Taylor already. You could see the Royals be super aggressive early, early on and try to try to make some moves in an effort to, you know, get some certainty before the deal expires. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next couple of weeks here. Yeah. I think there's a, the, the, the one piece of this that I think is, you know, I, I get it from a player's perspective and I would love to see the rules. Like I'm obviously in no way part of these negotiations. I have no way what it would look like, but I think the most reasonable massive chip that is on the table is the international draft. And I think the players should use that as long as it makes sense. Let's say the international draft has the exact same rules, the exact same um, numbers, the exact same format as the June draft. As reasonable as that sounds to me, and I don't play, but even if I was a player, I think it sounds pretty reasonable. I would be using that as my biggest piece of leverage. I think the owners really want it. I don't think the player should be super hesitant to like give that up as long as they're getting what they feel like is equal in return. I do think there's a lot of reasons for optimism because I think a couple of the things the owners want seemingly really want the players as much criticism as they got the last CBA. I think they held on to a couple big chips they can really use in their, in their defense and then their um, and in their negotiating leverage. Uh, Lesky, I'll, I'll shift to you here. Um, a, anything you're hearing about the CBA, any thoughts on the CBA, and B, do you agree that the CBA affecting the Royals' young prospects is the most important way that it affects the Royals this year? 
Yeah. I mean, for the Royals, it, it, it's all about service time, right? Because they, they don't, <clears throat> the luxury tax is not going to be an issue. The minimum salary, and that's kind of the other side of it, whether, whether they're talking about lowering the luxury tax, but hey, we're going to make the minimum salary, whatever it is. So it's going to force teams to spend money. I mean, I think they're probably under what a minimum would have been, but it wouldn't be difficult to get over that. So yeah, I think it's all about the service time. And, and like you said, if if it becomes four years, five years, whatever, then yeah, they're probably a little more likely to game the system. Um, <clears throat> but that said, I, I think that, yeah, that there's, there's not a whole lot in this that, that's huge for the world. I, I think they're better off with an international draft personally. <laughs> so I think it actually helps the organization there. They, they do pretty well. Um, but they, I mean, they're, look, they're, you're, you're losing guys. The, the Cuban pipeline doesn't come to Kansas city as an example. It just, it just doesn't. Um, I'm sure who is the, oh gosh, the $7 million guy, lefty. What was his name? Noel uh, Arguellas. Thank you. Thank you. I was it's like, it starts with an A. It's not Almonte. Um, I think that's the last big Cuban free agent they've signed internationally like, as a, um, as a younger player. So stuff like that, I think actually would benefit the Royals greatly. And as, as far as where it's going, you know, I, I, I in my opinion, the, what we saw last week, I think it was, where the AP put out that story that it's likely to be, there's likely to be a work stoppage on December 2nd. That came from the owners. Um, <clears throat> it always does. And the players never use the media, which they probably should. But that came from the owners. It, it put some pressure out there. I mean, if I remember report, Manfred and Tony Clark were talking at the World Series, which is a good thing. I, I, any conversations, probably a good thing. And I think, I think Max, you're referencing, I forgot where it was, but I think it was the athletic with talking about the strike and lockout differences. And, and the one point that was made in that article that is so true is things get done right before they have to get done. And so the deadline is December 2nd. I, I mean, I, I, I think that seems like there's a decent chance it gets done December 1st at 1159. I, I think that it, or, or it gets close enough that they say, okay, we're, we, we have enough of a deal that we're going to push this to January 2nd or whatever they do and, and keep things open and, and, and do all that. Um, and real quick to the point about getting things done quickly, I think that actually benefits a team like the Royals because I wonder how many players, and you're not going to get, it's not going to be the Seegers, the Correas, you know, the, the, the top tier free agents who are going to run out to sign. But if the Royals say, we want to go out and get, a guy I've been looking at as a, as a reliever, Daniel Hudson, maybe he wants to sign and just get that money. Maybe he says, all right, if, if somebody wants to have me for two years and 24 million, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, take me now. And, and if the Royals want to be aggressive, maybe they can get their guy without having to compete against teams who really need to see where the bigger fish end up landing. And so I think that's a place where the Royals can really take advantage of this. If, if there are players willing to do that. And I think it is that middle tier and even the lower tier where the Royals are probably going to be playing this winter. I think that's a chance for them to really, really take advantage of this market before December 2nd. Will they, I don't know, but it, that could be something big for them. Well, in the, in the luxury tax. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Minda. Oh, well, I'm really glad you brought up um, like how mid tier and kind of like fringy guys are going like how the the negotiations are going to affect things at like the player level because i've been wondering about that um actually ryan mcbroom got me thinking about that because like he's a guy that um in his places the royals but in result you know like whatever he definitely has a future with a major league team however 
signing in eight, you know, with whatever, has it been announced yet? Which, uh, where he's going somewhere in Asia is, is as specific as we have, but like, is that a hedge for him? For like, if there's no major league baseball next year, he's still getting a better, you know, there's still a place for him where he can be evaluated against, you know, good talent and make good money. Um, while, you know, if there is a stoppage that he's not stuck competing for, you know, AAA money, maybe somewhere if he's lucky. And, it, you know, will there be other, will we see any kind of like, not mass exodus, but any, any more of, you know, maybe players looking at their own situations that way? Yeah, I, I don't know specifically how this applies to guys like O'Hearn, um, or I'm sorry, like McBroom. But I was thinking about like 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 the guys like maybe a step above Ryan McBroom, who if they didn't have a bunch of minor league success, maybe they had like very little major league success. And I don't want to use like a like a Daniel Hudson, but somewhere between Daniel Hudson and Ryan McBroom, though that level of players, I think the salary tax potential to change in the new CBA can benefit those players early on, kind of like what Lesky was saying, because let's say the Dodgers really wanted to give Ryan McBroom or Daniel Hudson or one of these lower level ish players, you know, two years, $20 million. Well, if they're waiting to see what the luxury tax is going to be before they do anything other than sign like Corey Seager, that could be a benefit to the Royals. who are like, Hey, we don't have to worry about the luxury tax. We can go get these guys now. Whereas the Dodgers can't maybe give that deal yet because if the luxury tax comes down, they're going to have to like cut salary. So it's interesting to me that Ryan McBroom went to decided to go to Asia early on. Not that, you know, it's not exactly the type of player I was thinking of. And it doesn't, this example doesn't fit him perfectly, but let's say the Orioles wanted to give him a shot to play first base. Like they can do that early on and not have to worry about the CBA. Whereas like again, I don't know why the Dodgers would be interested in Ryan McBroom, but if they wanted to, like they're going to have to wait and see. And so, you know, I don't know. I, I I do wonder, like, going to, you know, Japan potentially gives him guarantee to play, but also, like, I wonder if those opportunities wouldn't open up a little bit for him um, early on in the offseason before the CBA is officially signed on and, and becomes official. Minda, I wanted to get your thoughts on the CBA as it relates to minor leaguers. The minor league baseball players got already this offseason, or it wasn't even the offseason yet, um, guaranteed housing. If there's anything that the Major League Baseball Players Association can do to protect its minor league players in this new CBA, they've already got housing sort of figured out. We'll see what that actually looks like, but it sounds like teams are going to be required to to pay for minor league housing. What is the next thing you really want to see the Major League PA go after for these minor league players in the next CBA? I don't know how much they can. Um, you know, as much as I would love to like pot, like see big leaguers like step up for their minor league brethren, like I don't know, you know, the structure of the union, like I, I don't know how much that they're going to be able to do to non unionized players, but if there's a path toward helping create a minor league union and like that's the bargaining chip, like that'd be rad. Um, I just don't know to what extent they can do that. Um, you know, I mean, their first duty as a union, I think, is, you know, bargaining for the people who are in it. And that stinks because, I mean, the minor leaguers need some power behind them um, to kind of keep 
getting improvements. Um, so I, I just don't know what, to what extent they can, but um, but I think just a path towards some kind of, of union type protection for minor leaguers would just be um, probably the biggest um, umbrella thing that would then hopefully cover some of these more, you know, different uh, improvements. Um, but if that weren't possible, then I would say nutrition, they should, it would be so easy and cheap relatively uh, to feed minor league players real food um, and, you know, give them a chance to make their bodies work as well as they can work. Um, and it would cost, you know, a replacement level guy at the major league level. Like that's all it would cost per year. Um, but there's no reason not to feed minor leaguers real food, get chefs, get kitchens built at all the parks, especially now that there's fewer parks. Like I've been crowing about that for years. And now that there's 40 fewer minor league parks, then there's even less of a reason not to get kitchens, get chefs, get, you know, I don't care if it's blue apron meal kit deliveries or whatever. Um, just get them fed. Uh, one, a mutual friend of all of ours, uh, Clint Scholes mentioned in a, a write-up he did over at Royals Academy recently that it seems like every time there's a new CBA discussion that the fans, for some reason, turn on the players. And it's like the fans are always signing with the owners. And it's so, you know, it, it makes a sense a, a little bit in that, you know, their teams, fans are rooting for the name on the front of the jersey. That is um, true. Every year it's true in every sport. Teams are rooting or fans are rooting for the name on the front of the jersey most of the time. I think the NBA is a little bit different in that regard. But regardless, Jeremy, I want to get your thoughts on how, how should fans be approaching this CBA? Like it's, it's easy to say they should just be rooting for the players. The players should get everything they want. And we want the players to win. And we want, you know, this, this, and that. But what are some things specifically that fans can can root for for the players? And how can we stop on social media embarrassing ourselves by constantly backing the owners in these situations um, and, and side with the players in, in some ways? So – the biggest thing I think that kind of causes this is that the owners, the the MLB team accounting books are not public. People don't actually know how much money the teams are making, how much money the owners are making. They know to the penny how much each player is making and how how and why they're making it and whether that value uh, meets the criteria that they feel should should be there. So uh, uh, there's this idea, you know, the we've got this the war concept, right? The wins above replacement, and we can tie that to a dollar amount and say this is how much uh, a, a single war should cost. And so everyone knows, like, is my player uh, is he more valuable than he's being paid? Is he is this player less valuable than he's being paid? And they don't know anything about the owners and i think that they look at the players and they go oh this guy's getting paid way too much for the production he's giving and they don't see the owners they don't they don't think about how the owners are making hand over fist and offering no value for the team right the the if the owner changes the team is exactly the same the team doesn't get better the team doesn't get worse if the players change, the, the whole team changes. 
Um, so I think there's just that that level, that disconnect between I know how much this guy is making and I know he's not worth it. And I have no idea how much he's making. And a lot of them will buy into this. They, they use these accounting tricks to kind of, I, okay, some people take, uh, take issue with the word tricks, I guess. Um, they use these tools of accounting to, to kind of uh, obscure the money in order to reduce the taxes that they pay. And they'll report losses when the teams are actually making money. And to that, I would remind people, uh, if if baseball teams were losing as much money as all of the owners and front offices were claiming, they would not be such hot commodities for rich people. Rich people don't like risk. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. When you already have that much money, you don't have a priority of making all of the money. You just need to make more money. And so you can take low-risk endeavors and continue to make money. Uh, so if if baseball teams were really all that risky rich people wouldn't wouldn't want in on that racket they would they would go find some other way that they would be more guaranteed to make a smaller amount of money uh it, it just makes financial sense uh assuming that you don't treat baseball as a hobby wherein spending money is not necessarily an evil but that's a whole separate ball of wax uh so th- th- there's just so much they don't know and then i think it becomes this thing and this is the interesting thing to me is the the third factor I see is that there are hundreds of players and there are 30 owners. And I was thinking about this the other day because uh, in the, in the United States and in North America, I think uh, there's this underdog mentality, right? Oh, we got to root for the little guy. And you'd think that would lean towards the player's favor because they make billions while the owners make billions. But I think what ends up happening is because there's hundreds of players and only 30 owners, people say, oh, no, those players are ganging up on the owners. And so the underdog mentality kind of kicks in there. So those are just kind of three things to keep in mind. And to, to counter that, I would just say the owners have billions of dollars. They have at least hundreds of millions. And remember, most of the baseball players are not being paid like Mike Trout. They're not being paid like uh, Francisco Lindor. They're not being paid like Fernando Tatis Jr. When people think of baseball players, they think of the wealthiest baseball players. Many of them are getting paid like Nicky Lopez. Nicky Lopez had a fantastic season. How much did he get paid for that? About half a million dollars, which, yes, is a lot of money to you and me, but it's nothing compared to other baseball players that people typically think about. And it's less than nothing to the owners. So when you think about baseball players, remember that a lot of what's being fought for in these CBAs is not for the Mike Trouts. It's not for the Fernando Tatis Juniors. It's for the Nicky Lopez's. It's for the, the I mean, w- one of the big points of contention that we've all been talking about uh, is the service time. And where does the service time come in? It doesn't come in on Mike Trout, it comes in on these other guys. Um, so they're not just fighting for the big guys, they're fighting for the little guys. And so you got a, a little guys as far as baseball goes. And, and I think that's just where you need to f- keep your focus is on who benefits. And, and to be honest, people talk about, oh, fans don't benefit either way. And they really don't. So find the smallest guy who benefits and that's going to be the players with the the least money and the least um uh the the 
the contracts that are still going to be paying them far less than they are worth until they're too old to cash in now based on the advanced metrics that say, well, you're not going to be good anymore because you're already 31. Um, so just remember those kinds of things. And, and then you won't make the mistake of rooting for the owners. That was a very good response. I knew when I went to you there at the, at the end that we were going to get a good response to close that segment out. So <clears throat> Lesky, you wanted to talk about the pitchers. Yes, that was actually me. That that's right, and then I uh, <laughs> no. want to talk about what's going on in Omaha. So let's do this in this order. Let's talk about um, the season that we had in Omaha, and then we will segue that with the pitcher specifically because we we saw a couple hitters come up from Omaha, specifically the big the big catch this summer was the pitcher. So let's Minda, let's start in Omaha, and then we will slowly segue our way um, as to the pitchers arriving in Kansas City. So. Um, Tell us about the the season the Storm Chasers had this summer. So it was a weird season because, um, you know, I mean, first of all, just for my position, it like everything was just different as far as like access and everything. So it was kind of a weird season to approach just from like, where can I stand? Where can I watch from? So like this vantage point from the start was odd, but then it was like, it doesn't matter. They could have me shooting from the parking lot and I'd be psyched because we have all these prospects, including, you know, I mean, like, oh my gosh, our starting pitching rotation has Jack Carr and Daniel Lynch in it, you know, from day one. Like, we're going to win every game. It didn't end up happening like that. It was a great team um, and the most ridiculous I've ever seen. Um, you know, uh, I mean, the offense, like they hit 231 home runs, the next closest team hit 190. It's just absurd in a good way. Yeah, it, it, it certainly was a lot of fun to watch from, from a fan's point of view, because there was, it was, it was almost like there was two separate seasons. There was one season where there was Jackson Coar and Daniel Lynch and the pitching, like you said, the pitching was, was thought it was going to be lights out. And then Jackson Kowar was elite, dominant for the first half of that season. And Daniel Lynch um, wasn't as dominant early on, but ended up having a really good stretch there before he got called back up. And then as the pitchers kind of segued to the big leagues, in comes Bobby Witt Jr., in comes Nick Prado, and then eventually MJ Melendez. And I texted um, I texted Grant Gavin, the former roommate of mine, I texted him in the middle of the season, like, well, Things just got awful sporty in your end of the in the world. And he goes, Yeah, he's like, this is gonna be a fun stretch run, or I don't remember exactly what he said, but you could tell he was excited about getting to play with some of these guys. And then in the also in the middle of the Omaha Storm Chaser season, um, one thing I didn't think about, Grant and I were in college when the Royals won the World Series in 2015. I remember watching some of those games um, you know, with Grant, with with a few other people. I texted him at one point, I was like, dude. Alcides Escobar was your shortstop last night. Like how? Like how was that? Like that's a talk about a blast from the past. Like how was it? Turn around, turn a double play, turn around to communicate. And there's the guy that we watched hit the leadoff home run in 2015 to start the World Series. So I mean, the collection of players that Omaha had this year was was brilliant. It was a lot of fun to watch. It created a lot of good storylines. Ryan McBroom somehow went like maybe unappreciated down there because. He'd had big league experience. He's not a high-level prospect. And yet, 
hits 31 or two home runs while he was down there this year. I mean, um, just a great season from him as well. I think he didn't, I mean, didn't he set the Omaha Storm Chasers record for home runs in a season? Yeah, in the Storm Chasers era, um, which was from 2011. Um, yep, 32 homers. And yeah, I mean, it was weirdly like invisible. Um, but that dude just hit and hit and hit every day. I mean, and uh, uh, and it was like a little bit unnoticed down the stretch, especially. It was like he got overshadowed in the start because Ryan O'Hearn hit like Ted Williams and then got called up. And then there was a stretch of time that, I don't know, it was just kind of time. But then like, um, you know, the prospects got called up. And so that kind of overshadowed the, you know, the second half of the season. So like McBroom was like this, like this machine and was weirdly invisible the entire time. Um, but uh, it was a great, like it, that was fascinating to me um, in that context, to, like watch him deal with the, you know, like the arrival of the guy who's taking his job. Um, that was a really interesting angle that um, by the time Nick Prado and Bobby Witt Jr. got uh, promoted, um, I was allowed to, I was able to be back on field level for shooting. So I got more like looking at, you know, watching into the dugout and everything that I didn't get to do in the start of the season um, because of COVID restrictions. And it was just really fascinating watching McBroom um, kind of mentor at least it's what it appears like mentor Prado and like, you know, they, they would talk, I could see them, you know, doing like, like going through like swing motions and, you know, they're clearly talking, hitting and, and, and learning from each other. And it was really fascinating to watch. That was a facet of the season that um, just in addition to like the absolute joy of like having three top 100 prospects in my lineup every day, um, you know, just also watching like from just like a, teammate perspective how that all folded together with um you know someone that is losing their job basically to you know this prospect and in real time and like I don't know it was, it was uh it spoke well of everyone involved um just how everyone dealt with that stuff like that is why Bull Durham is one of my favorite baseball movies maybe my favorite baseball movie ever that's like it's like almost literally the storyline for Crash Davis like in that movie is the savvy vet who they send down to go kind of work with the younger kids, get them in line also plays really well with probably no chance of going back to the big leagues in any real capacity. Um, In that same token though, I watched like Nick Prado and Bobby Witt Jr. Being of similar ages, being of, you know, similar prospect status. I watched them have similar conversations like that at double a, I was down in Springfield watching a few games uh, while they were still at double a and you could just tell that that the relationship they had i don't know when it started per se but they clearly had a connection that was beyond baseball and you can see it with like you could see it with prado and melendez specifically on the field even going back to like 2018 um it seemed like every other like when they were in lexington like every other pitch uh, when there was a runner on first, they were picking guys off. And so you could, you can see the connections they're building. It's a really special core. And I'm glad, A, you got to you got to see that this year. But I'm really excited for for fans to see that at the big league level next year. 
And then I want to get your thoughts on the pitching really quick. The pitching you guys saw in Omaha in spurts this year, I just realized, I was getting ready to say John and Heasley, he skipped AAA altogether, which was funny because I didn't think they were supposed to be allowed to do that. Like, I thought they had a rule. Like, I was almost pretty, I was almost positive they had a rule. You couldn't go straight from AA to the big leagues. And Heasley didn't spend any time in Omaha. So you didn't get to see Heasley, but you got to see Daniel Lynch, Jackson Kowar, Carlos Hernandez for a time. Like, that's a really big three-headed monster of sorts of pitching prospects all in Omaha. And then even Brady Singer was there for a little bit. So um, tell us about the pitching. And if it wasn't the performance specifically, which pitcher dominated on the mound more so than maybe you expected? Um, I think for me, that would be Carlos Hernandez. Um, Like, I don't know. It it was, I'm not really sure like how much I expected of him. It's still I, I still think of him as young, although I'm realizing he's 24, but like, um, you know, I, I guess the ones that I was looking forward to, you know, were Coar and Lynch. Um, but I love what I thought of Fernandez. Um, and I just like how he is as a player and, and teammate and all that. Um, so the brief time that, you know, he was in Omaha was fascinating. Um, anytime he was on the mound, it was, you know, it was something to watch. Um, and then whenever Coar was on, that was just awesome. His debut, I think he had like 10, nine strikeouts, I think in his triple A debut. And, um, you know, well, like when he's on, it's like, oh, okay, I get this. Like I get how this is going to go and, and that he's got this bright major league future. And it was, um, it was a lot of fun to watch. Um, but, um, I don't know. I just have a really soft spot. I think that Hernandez was someone that I enjoyed watching. Um, also, just a lot of great relief uh, pitchers this year, your roommate being one of them. Grant had an incredible season, and, and I mean, he was just, you know, could really, really pretty much know exactly what you were getting when he came out. Um, and I never really worried uh, too much. So it was a really right-hander heavy bullpen um, pretty much most of the season. Gabe Fire was the one and only lefty. So that was odd. Um, tough to manage a bullpen when they're all righties. Um, it really, really hampers the manager's ability to like win games or, you know, manage. Uh, there's, there's no real matchup games to play, but um, a lot of really great relievers that, you know, some of them went up and contributed to the Royals for a time. Um, and, uh, but the rest of the time, they really locked things down when, you know, whenever they were given a lead, which was nice. I like wins. <laughs> Don't we all? You're, you brought up Kowar and how dominant he was at times. I want to transition now to Lesky a little bit to how Kowar looked at the big league level. David, I watched every single pitch live and some of them twice that Jackson Kowar threw at AAA Omaha. I don't think I could have said it enough that the Jackson Kowar we watched at the big league level this year is not the Jackson Kowar we got at AAA. It's not, it's, it wasn't even close. His fastball command, he, he never has like pinpoint control. He's not going to Jonathan Bolinia. He's not going to, spot up hit every single spot but his fastball command at times in Omaha was really really good 
in the big league level, it was like he had no idea where it was going. I don't know what to make of that. Like, I, I've been outspoken in my criticisms of Cal Eldred. Like, I don't even think you can put that on a pitching coach, how bad he was in Oakland specifically, like those first couple of starts. What do you make of the struggles that he and Daniel Lynch also had early on? Do you think there's something – I don't want to say it's the culture. I don't want to say it has anything to do with the coaches, the culture in the locker room. I don't want to say it like it's a damning thing. But I, I don't know what else to make of it because it was so different when they got to the big league level. that I, I tried to warn Royals fans, like, you, we didn't get to evaluate Coar at the big league level, in my opinion. Like, everything he did, we can throw out the window and just wait to see what happens again next spring. But I don't know what else to make of it. Like, if that's not who he is, then what happened? Yeah, it was, it was crazy because, I mean, Lynch less so than Coar, I think, because Lynch wasn't dominant in the minors. I mean, he, he had some issues here and there. And, and, and really, if you think back to Lynch's first start, it wasn't bad. Um, I thought the slider was really good. The fastball, I mean, the, the knock on Lynch that a lot of people have said is that he, it, his fastball is not a swing and miss fastball as, as much as it should be. When you look at the velocity and there's some decent spin on it, it it's just, he, there's some work to do there. So Lynch less so than Coar, but Coar was, like you said, was a totally different guy in Omaha. I mean, it was, it was not, it, it, it was two pitchers, truly. It was two, it was like they called up uh, somebody entirely different and put him in Coar's jersey and gave him the Hochaver haircut, um, which, by the way, that terrified me. In spring training, when I saw him, looked like Hochaver. I was like, nope, bad omen. No, don't do it. Um, although maybe he'll be a shutdown reliever and win, win game five of the World Series. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of it. <laughs> One thing that I remember back in Coar's first start, I was probably a little hasty because I think I tweeted something like, this is another ding on the Royals evaluation. And then I went back and I'm going, well, how could you look at what Coar did in Omaha and say he's not ready? I mean, there, there's, there were no signs. I mean, you, you can't put up the numbers he did and then say, well, you're not ready because of this reason. And, and I, I, I mean, I think there's some truth to it in some ways, but I, I, I don't know what the difference is. The only thing I can point to, and this, this is kind of damning of the coaching staff, they have a lot of first inning problems. I mean, they are, in general, the young pitchers really struggle to start games. My question, I don't know the answer to this. This is, this is just me from the outside looking in. How prepared are they to start these games? What, what kind of preparation goes into taking them out against a big league opponent for a Royal starting pitcher, because the number of times we went out and saw Coar and Lynch and Singer and Bubich and Lesso Hernandez struggle in that first inning, it was, you could almost set your watch to it. And, and it's just, it's, it's one of those things that you just, you, you just I, I just wish I could be in the room to find out how they're preparing for that start, because it seemed like almost every time outside of August, it seemed like almost every time they were they were just getting shelled to start the game, and, and then they they'd settle down. and And you you can add Brad Keller to that list too, because he was a guy who he really struggled early in games, especially early in the year when he struggled. He also struggled late in games early in the year, so maybe that's not the best example. But that that's what I wonder about. And you know, with with Coar specifically, it just seemed like the moment was just too big for him. And and and. and in Anaheim, for sure. I mean, I, I think I don't think you'd talk to anybody who would go, "Oh, he was totally composed on the mound," because he wasn't. It was obvious he was excited, he was worked up, 
Um, I don't know how you can know that's going to happen. Um, I mean, for a guy who's not that way to come to the big leagues and then immediately be that way. I, I don't know that you can predict that necessarily. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you've got to look, <clears throat> look toward next season and hope there's a turnaround. Like we saw, I mean, I, I can't remember who it was on MLB network radio was talking about the 90 and 91 Braves and how that pitching staff, and I have to go back and look, but I mean, Tom Glavin had like a five, seven ERA, something like that. John Smoltz was terrible. Um, Steve Avery, not good. You know, all these guys really struggled. And then it took them a year in the big leagues to figure some things out. Now, Coar and Lynch are the only two who really didn't get time of the big ones. I easily too, but um, <clears throat> who didn't get time in 2020 singer and Bubich were up. And so they, they had, they had some adjustment, but it's different season with fans in the stands. So I, I am very curious to see how 2022 goes for them. But what I think is interesting, two things, one, and, I'm, and I've got some stuff, coming out on this for on uh, on my notes article this week, but the Royals did really well with a six man rotation. I wrote it on inside the crown this week too, but they did really well with that six man rotation. And, and 2021, I think 2020 was so short that 2021 didn't provide the full reset for guys to get their full innings moving forward. And so you look at, at Carlos Hernandez, I think he threw like 114, 100, I can't remember the exact number, but somewhere around there. I mean, are you, do you expect 180 from him in 2022? I don't, I don't, I don't think that you can. I don't think you can expect 180 to 200 innings from Lynch or Coar or Bubich or Singer. I mean, maybe Bubich and Singer are probably the closest to that, partially because they had 2020, but how are you going to finesse those innings? How are you going to keep them healthy? Because 2022 still, as much as the Royals want to say it, still doesn't matter that much. I mean, we want it to, but 2023 is the year that it, it, I mean, the record matters in 22, but 23, they've, they've got to make a playoff push. I mean, that that's, that's what this is all coming to a head toward. And so you want to, you want to figure out the way that you can set these pitchers up for the best success possible in 2023 and get them to 150, 160 innings. So how do they handle that? A six man rotation cuts off about five starts per person, basically. They seem to do really well on five days rest. I mean, that that's something that that maybe means something. I don't know. It also could potentially allow them to go a little deeper in games and get that experience because, hey, you're going to get an extra day off. Yes, especially so on a day with an off or a week with an off day. Now you're getting six days off. Hey, we're going to push you to 120 pitches, 115 pitches. I don't I don't people will, will riot, but I think that's probably maybe a good idea to, to do that a little bit. So I'm really curious to see how they handle the staff, both with evaluating these arms. And I mean, the number that it, I, I, I keep going through it. And every time I do it, I think of another guy that I'd forgotten. It's minor. It's Bolaños. We don't talk about Brad Keller. Asa Lacey could be up. Jonathan Boland should be back. Hit Tommy. What was it? It was June, right? So he should be back late May, early June. So he should be back around August. That's like, I really wanted to see him last year. He's, he's one of my favorite prospects. I know he's yours too. <laughs> um, one of yours too. But um, I mean, the number of, of potential starters they have is ridiculous. <laughs> every time, like I said, I add one, I think it's 12 or 13 that you could make a really good argument should make at least one start in 2022. So it'll be very interesting to see how they handle all of that with the health and with evaluation and all that. And it's, it's, it's a tough job, but it's 
it's a good tough job because it's a good, it's, it's kind of like the infield issue. There's, there's too many good arms, too many, there, there's a lot of good players or potentially good players, at least they can get a look at. And so it, it's, it's a big year heading into 23 because they've got to know who's going to be that guy to lead the rotation and to take the ball on the fifth day too. I mean, it, it's, these are all important things they have to figure out this year or next year, I guess. Max, at the end of the season, Carlos Hernandez in the second half of the Major League season, 3.23 ERA. Chris Bubich, 3.68 ERA. Mike Miner, 3.78. Brad Keller, 3.96. Four of the Royal starters, um, not counting Jackson Coar, not counting Brady Singer. Brady Singer actually got worse. Um, but four of the Royal starters saw drastic improvement and were actually very good um, the second half of the season. This does not help my claim that Cal Eldrid should have been fired yesterday. Um, I, I don't know what to make of it. I, do you do you buy that the pitchers are this good? Do you think that this is tangible change that we can expect Chris Bubich to pitch to a three seven five ish ERA next year? Like, do you buy the improvement, or do you think that there is still some regression back to the mean a little bit that maybe we saw? Uh, some circumstances take place over like tangible improvement that, you know, I, I don't know. What do you think about the the improvement we did see in the second half of last year? Yeah, I think it's time to, to sign Cal Elger to a three or four year deal, lock him up, make sure he's with the organization. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. You know, it's, it's really hard to say. Cause um, you know, I, I, by the eye test, I think there was some improvement. I mean, I, you, you know, uh, Cal, Carlos Hernandez, was not a guy that was like on my radar screen really a year ago. And he, he's gone out and he's looked really impressive, uh, you know, as far as his ERA and getting the results. Now, I think there are some underlying um, peripherals that maybe, you know, he's not striking out a ton of guys, uh, even though he has got, he's got good velocity. Um, but I think you have to be pretty impressed with what he's done so far. Um, you know, Brad Keller ending the season on a, I, I got, you know, improved note at least until he got hurt. I think that's encouraging. Um, but again, he's another guy that doesn't strike out a lot of hitters and you kind of wonder if he's on borrowed time. So, you know, limited small, small samples like this, um, you know, are it's, they're encouraging, but at the same time, we don't want to buy too much into it. Um, and, and baseball is a game of adjustments. I think you saw a lot of these guys come up and I think David's right. It, you know, for some of these guys, the, the moment was too big for them initially. And then they kind of got their feet when they're okay. Okay. I can just, let me just go out, go out and play my game. Uh, you know, like Daniel Lynch came out after he got, uh, demoted came back to Kansas city looked brilliant against Oakland. Uh, and you, and you kind of saw the stuff that made him one of the top prospects in baseball and you think, okay, uh, well now there's a book on these guys. Now that now major league hitters have film of these guys and they're going to adjust and they, they're going to say, okay, I know. And so Chris, Chris Bubich throws when he gets down the count. Uh, we know Daniel Lynch wants to go to a slider. Uh, we know that, uh, you know, Brady singer, you know, he likes to throw that slider off the plate. So how do these pitchers adjust next year? Um, but I think, you know, you kind of raised this point earlier, you know, like it's good that they have a lot of options um, to, to go with the rotation. Cause I think just look at Houston and Atlanta this year in the world series. I mean, they were running on fumes trying to find anyone to start a game. Uh, you really need eight or nine, 10 guys to fill out a rotation these, this, these days because, you know, because of the pandemic, as you guys mentioned, uh, ramping up innings, and just the nature of throwing a baseball 95 miles an hour in a, you know, in a small little box is very taxing on the body. So uh, it's good that they have these options and, and it's, you know, it's good that they are 
you know, cheap options that could be shuttled in and out. They're not, they're not stuck other than Mike Miner. They're not really tethered to one guy. And Miner, you know, he's on a one-year deal now, so you could send him to the bullpen if you needed to. So they, you know, they don't have to throw a guy out there because he's on a big contract, you know, like Ian Kennedy. Um, they, they can kind of cycle guys in and out depending on how successful they are. And I think that gives them a lot of flexibility and options. I wrote an article today over at Royals Farm Report just kind of looking back at the 2014-15 Royals teams and kind of comparing how that would look in the future, like how close are the Royals to matching either of these teams and what would it take? Just the Braves got me thinking about it. The Royals really, because you mentioned the need to have eight or nine starters. I think what made that 2015 team start magical, they really started the same five or six guys all year. Like it was the same guys all year. If you look at the 2015 rotation, um, Edinson Volquez got 200 innings. Jordano Ventura got 163. Jeremy Guthrie got 148. Danny Duffy got 136. Chris Young got 123. Then they traded for Johnny Cueto, and that was it. That was like most of their starters all year. J- Jason Vargas came back at the end of the season, but that or he got hurt in the middle of the season. Maybe I can't remember if he pitched the beginning or into that one um, because he pitched at the end of another whatever. I mean, he started a few games, but it was like the same five or six guys all year, which was part of what made that team incredible. Um, that 2015 Royals team was just so much fun to watch. Um, but you're right. They will need starters. And I do think they've got a wide array of options. Now it's just kind of, like you said, they're going to have the flexibility to go throw the guys out there who are going to be successful. They're the most successful. Jeremy, what was your topic that you wanted to bring up tonight? Uh I wanted to talk about, I guess, uh, the fact that the Royals, who were not really ever in it and and have a, a little bit of depth for the first time in possibly as long as I've been watching since 1998, uh, chose to, to keep throwing some guys out there. I just had some questions about some of the coaching. You already talked about Kel Eldred a bit, um, but, but I think of Hunter Dozier, who was hurt early in the year and they kept sending him out there. He's, he's, he's not hitting, he's hurt. And, and you've got other guys who can play that position at least credibly. And and you keep sending him out there. Why? What is, what, what are you accomplishing when you do that? He's not adding to the wins, not that the wins and the wins don't matter. Like it's, it just boggles my mind. And then we found out after the season, Carlos Santana, potentially one of the reasons he was so bad down the stretch was he says he was hurt. Well, why is he playing? And you've and got by the way, like what, what, what Minda was talking about, Ryan McBroom set the organization record in Omaha since the storm chasers in, in 11 for home runs in a season. And you're going to let a guy like if Carlos Santana was a free agent at the end of the year, like I, whatever. I mean, I, I get it. If he wants to play, let him play. But like, like you said, he's on contract for another year. You still got to pay him in 2022. And like you said, it's like, what what are we forcing? What are we forcing the issue here for when we have credible, like maybe not good options, but like bodies who can play first base? Um, you know, I, I never what, really thought much about it until you until you brought this up earlier in the year, Jeremy. It's like, but it is kind of a weird thing that the Royals, specifically in 2022, were were guilty of. 2021 were guilty of. Real, real quick, here's what gets me about Carlos Santana, and this is going to be in notes as well. So you guys are stealing everything I've already written for Friday. Um, thanks for that. And um, Carlos Santana had playing time incentives, right? Pl- uh, plate appearances. $25,000 uh, at a certain point up to 525 He got hurt on August 23rd. 
right? August 23rd was also the day he had his 525th plate appearance. And so you could make an argument that the Royals say, hey, if he wants to play, we're going to get him his playing time incentives. But he already got to the last one. There was literally no reason for him to keep playing. All it does is hurt him, hurt the team. It does, there's nobody who benefits from him hitting 127 or whatever it was. They 19 hits in his last 118 at-bats. He had three extra base hits from that point forward. After he'd hit his final playing time incentive, there is literally no reason for him to have been on the field. Would have been an opportunity to see Isbell or Olivares or McBroom or uh, Prado if you want to bring him up and see what he can do. Anyway, I, I just wanted to throw That's that Quintino. in. Because it, whoever. Because that it's just so interesting to me that that was the game he hit his 525th plate appearance. So there were no more incentives for him even. It's not even like you could point to that. It just made no sense. We could Are have there seen uh, playing time incentives Hart. next year too for him? Yeah, he's got uh, – I don't remember what the top number is, but he does have incentives next year. But either way, so like playing hurt might jeopardize his ability to like play a full it, season next year too. So he might exactly. be hurting his own earnings for next year too. Or or That's even a- even in the future, because if it, if he's if he never recovers, maybe he doesn't have a good year. Who who's going to sign him? What's he going to get in twenty twenty three? I mean, there it's it's actually next year it's seventy five thousand for each plate appearance. It's every twenty five starting with three hundred, ending with five twenty five. That, so, is, that is crazy to me. Like, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> so the Royals have credible backups. Like like we said, not great. Maybe not even good, but reasonable options for major league play. And they keep sending these guys out when they're hurt. And, and they had to do stuff like that in the past. Because if, you know, say Mike Moustakis goes down in 2014, 2015. Well, 2014, they were trying to get figure out how to send him to the minor leagues, but they don't, they don't have anybody else who can play third base. If Eric Cosmer goes down in 2015, you don't have anyone who can play first base. So guys got to play hurt. And I, I just wonder if that's kind of infected the, the organization to a degree because it just doesn't make any sense uh, for all the reasons that we've discussed. Why is Hunter Do- Dozier playing hurt? Why is Carlos Santana playing hurt? And then why are the team criticizes, not just the fans, but the team criticizes Alberto Mondesi for not wanting to play hurt. Well, why should he? The team isn't any good. He's going to get raked over the coals by the media because no one's talking about how he's playing hurt. It just, it bogg- and I, I have to wonder if, uh, Jorge Soler might have been hurt because they're not. We find out all this stuff well after the fact. Jorge Soler is awful all year, and then suddenly he's World Series MVP for Atlanta. Like so, so I have to wonder: was he hurt? I don't have any evidence that he was, except he did miss, I think, a couple games uh, because of a, an injury. So was it worse than we thought? And he just finally healed when he went to a couple weeks before he went to Atlanta. I, I don't know because the Royals are just doing all kinds of crazy stuff with the, with the, the injuries. And I hope as we talk about the, the depth of the starting pitching that they have uh, with these, these guys that they're not going to ask anybody to pitch hurt because why there's no reason to, you've got somebody else who can come pitch. Don't, don't have guys pitch hurt. Don't let them get hurt worse. Don't let them lose their confidence because they're pitching hurt. Just, just put guys on the injured list. That's what it's for. 
And, and it's only 10 days. Like it's been reduced. It's not even 15 days anymore. It's 10 days. You're not, you're not even losing them for two whole weeks. Oh, it's not as big a deal as we thought it was. Okay. Well, you, he missed a start. Oh no. The end of the world. Come on. Just, just, I really hope the Royals can, can clean up their act in this degree um, in this regard, I should say, because it, it's driving me nuts to watch guys go out there and just have absolutely no opportunity to produce anything because they're playing so badly hurt. And, and there's just no reason for it because there are, there are multiple other guys who can play better than, uh, you know, maybe uh, Emmanuel Rivera isn't better than Hunter Dozier if Hunter Dozier is at a hundred percent, but he's better than Hunter Dozier at whatever percentage he was playing at. So, uh, uh, and who knows, I probably probably wouldn't affect the record, but who knows what it does for these guys as we're talking about Santana hurting his ability maybe next year. But who knows what it does next year? Who knows what it does in 2023 if they don't clean it up? It's, it's, it's just uh, such an easy thing to not screw up. And yet here we are. Yeah, it's an interesting point that I had not thought about really at all um, until you brought it up because it does it does appear to be some something of a reoccurring theme. And um, Annie Rogers tweeted out the other day, or actually it was today, that um, the Royals coaching staff would be mostly the same this coming year. And you know, the more I think about it, like I, I don't think the coaching staff is a total unmitigated disaster or anything. I do not like all of them as coaches that well, but I don't think it's like a total disaster at all. But like the more I think about it and like every time somebody brings up a good point, I'm like, Oh, that's another good point against like the current coaching staff. And then there's like another good point brought up against the current coaching staff. And every time I try to defend them, it's like somebody else brings up a good point about why, maybe why they shouldn't be retaining their jobs. And so uh, something to be looking for, um, you know, I, they, they better be right because the the young players you're bringing up are the future of this team. Um, and I would want to make sure that they're in the best hands possible. Not that the coaching staff made anybody play hurt, but you can also be as a coach, be proactive. Like we had had a kid couple th- this past spring, we were taking infield before a game. It's raining. We're playing on turf ball, smoked him in the shin. And I could tell he did not feel good. He was running all ginger. He was limping. And we made the decision for him to take him out of the game because one game wasn't worth more games down the line. Like it's not always about the players being proactive for themselves. Sometimes the coaches have to go out and and take them off the field when they know that that's what's best for them as well. So not, not something that I'd ever thought of until Jeremy brought it up, but it is something that maybe it's a little tinfoil hatty. um, But even if it's not like, I do think there's something to it. I think there's, I think there's something to it. I, I think if it was just promising. one guy, I would cut them some slack. But it's at least two. It's at least two, possibly more. And I, again, we only find out if the players talk about it because the team isn't talking about it. And like you said, the coaches can be proactive. So, and the coaches, it's their job to know whether these guys are hurt. So either they're failing at knowing these guys are hurt and playing injured for whatever reason, or they're choosing to let them play injured and, and either way, that's not good. <laughs> like, just don't do that. 100%. Any final thoughts tonight? I want to add one thing to the, the injury yeah. issue. <clears throat> what gets me, this is, this drives me nuts. 
I've said I, I've said this on I think every radio show I was on this year. The Royal they had with Hunter Dozier with Brady Singer specifically those two. They had the opportunity to keep them on a rehab assignment and chose not to. They had a free option, basically. Hunter Dozier runs, you know, tries to form tackle Jose Abreu, and they both they both go down. Dozier's, I, I don't know if he had a concussion or it was concussion symptoms either, but it doesn't matter. They sent him to Omaha for this rehab assignment. He gets, I think it was 17 or 18 plate appearances. He could have been down there for 20 days. Could have had 20 days to get his swing right and they bring him back why i don't know brady singer has a shoulder issue which they they've admitted they probably were really really careful with him great they should be he gets two starts in omaha they were bad starts <laughs> I mean, and i know that he was throwing his change up a lot more why not you get 30 days for a pitcher why not give him three more starts in Omaha and say, we don't care what the results are. We want to see 75 change-ups over these next three starts, whatever it is. It makes zero sense to me that they, they, they don't take advantage. I mean, they're gifted an opportunity to have a guy in the minors without saying we sent you down without, without the stigma of being demoted, all this stuff. And they just didn't take it. And that is, I can't, I can't fathom it. It makes me crazy. I don't know. As Peter would say, they could have fed two birds with one scone. And and they they chose not to, and you just have to wonder why. I've never heard that. That is outstanding. You could have fed two birds with one scum. I just saw a random list of things PETA wants people to say <laughs> instead of other things after the whole arm barn thing. Are you a Family Guy fan? Yes, sometimes. There's a, there's a scene when Peter's sitting there's like Lois comes in, it's like they're gonna eat breakfast or something. And Peter's like, I, f- I found a way to kill two birds with one stone. And he takes these two little bluebirds out, puts them on the table, and smashes them with a big rock. He goes, the key is to get two small birds and a big rock. I also <laughs> found a way to solve two problems with one solution. It's just like, that is, I think, like, that is like the epitome of what Family Guy's humor is. But that scene specifically, I don't know why I thought that was so funny, but I laughed. I laughed so hard I had to, like, pause the episode so that I could finish crying and then turn it back on. Um, just an outstanding that and the Conway Twitty clips, just, just, just outstanding work by Seth MacFarlane. So um, world series is wrapped up. We're doing the SB nation off season SIM coming up. I've got the Chicago white Sox. I told um, some guys in the Royal trade, everybody trade, trade yes. Tim Anderson for Alberto Mondesi. I am tanking the White Sox to make room for the Royals. We're playing chess, not checkers here. So um, I do have control of the Chicago White Sox and the SB Nation Sim this offseason. That's always one of my favorite activities we do, and it'll be it'll be published somewhere for everybody to read to um, to, to kind of recap them and see how the season goes. Max, who has the Royals this year for the offseason Sim? Uh, it's, it's Matthew Lamar every year uh, in, in perpetuity. Uh, but Sean Newkirk, uh, I believe is taking on the angels. So there's some, a couple, uh, you know, familiar faces at Royals review that are, will be heading teams. And for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, you know, we take 30, uh, fans and let, I let each one run a team, uh, and they work out trades with each other under, you know, semi real world world conditions and then negotiate free agents, uh, contracts with the agent, which is myself. And we do it over a couple of days and just, uh, it's just fun to see what kind of trades people come up with and uh, what 
deals these free agents. It'll be interesting this year because this is a, last year I think it was kind of a crummy free agent class. This year's class it's pretty stacked. Carlos Correa, Max Scherzer, Trey Turner. Uh, it could be pretty interesting this year. Bunch of future Royals in that list. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get thirty-four year old uh, Carlos or Carlos Correa in his Miguel Tejada years uh, here in a little bit. That was outstanding. One of my favorite, most underrated eras of I think you're five years too early on that just for the record he, he's it, it's his it's his contract after the next contract is the royals <laughs> right yeah so that'll be that'll be outstanding when matt when jeremy's right in in 10 years and we get carlos correa and in, in the twilight of his career um anyway the if you guys follow royals review there will be plenty of off-season content there that's all almost um like clockwork at this point uh, David said he's going to be continue to be riding inside the crown. Um, I will be riding periodically over at Royals Farm Report. I know, uh, Minda, do you have anything planned for a minor league column on Tuesdays still on Royals Review? Not in the same capacity. I definitely want to look back at like the season as a whole at each level. Um, but you know, there's and then kind of take a look at what guys are doing at winter leagues as well. We do have a couple of Royals players. Um, in in uh, winter league, this is fun. Awesome, and then you can catch Jeremy's work typically on Saturday mornings over at Royals Review. So, I appreciate you all listening for this. Um, I appreciate you guys for for joining me tonight. Have a little roundtable discussion on some of the issues we think were the most important to talk about tonight. So, we'll be back again in a week or two with another episode of the Royals Review Radio Podcast. Until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you all again very soon. <laughs>